Hello, hello, hello. My name is Robert. I am the recovery guy, and you have entered into the fix. the recovery guy and today's podcast is from a talk that I did this last Saturday on March 19th at the South Davis Recovery Club in Bountiful Utah. Enjoy this talk and have a great day. My name is Robert and I am an alcoholic and it's uh, it's good to be here. I think most importantly um, and I mean this from the bottom of my, my heart um, I'm a happy grateful recovered alcoholic and uh, the first time I heard that was in uh, the meeting rooms in Las Vegas uh, back in uh, 1986. And the person who said that is my sponsor today. And I went up to him and, and I, I was almost insulted because I thought, who are you to be so arrogant that you need to proclaim yourself as a happy, grateful, recovered alcoholic? And he said to me, he said, you know, stick around after the meeting. I'll sit down and I'll walk you through the first 164 pages of the big book. And I'll show you exactly how I can be that. So that's what we want to do tonight. Um, I don't have any extra wisdom. I, I think I'm funnier than, than I really am. And uh, you can ask my wife if you don't believe me. I tell jokes and she just looks and says, please don't tell that joke in public. So I don't. Uh, but what I am is I'm serious about recovery. Um, and Cameron, I'm so glad that you read what you read. Uh, you know, one of the great things about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've been going to meetings for a long time. Today I have 13,111 days, and that's a long time. And I, and I want to share the days with you because in the big book it says what we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. So if that's what it says in the big book, then that's how I need to relate my recovery to you. Everything I know, everything I've learned, every way I try to live my life is from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because before AA, I had no life. Before I was introduced to the program, my life was going nowhere fast. And if it was going anywhere, it was, it was going to die. And the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous literally saved my life. And for that, I'm grateful beyond understanding because the reality is more of us die from this condition this addiction this disorder however you want to frame it more of us die than ever get well and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is not designed and I want to make this very clear it's not designed to teach you and me how not to drink because in the big book it says that we feel a man unthinking who thinks sobriety is enough and therefore to not drink is only the beginning to not drink is only is to stop at step one but we can't stop at step one because there's 12 steps and it says in the big book and how it works that some of these steps we balked we thought we could find an easier softer way but we could not and isn't that true of us because if there was an easier softer way <laughs> i'd have taken it decades ago right because I never met an opportunity, I never met a challenge that was too hard that 
were demanded my rigorous honesty that I didn't want to turn left and, instead of going straight through it because that's how my life was, really. I would tell people that I would want to learn how to go through life sideways because facing life head on was far too painful for me. And I learned that early on. And when you, you come from nothing and you realize you're nothing and you believe you're always going to be a nothing, when I discovered alcohol when I was 14 years old, and it made me what I call an almost. When you come from nothing and you think you're nothing and you're always going to be a nothing, when you become an almost, it's everything to you. And that's what I try to do with alcohol. I try to capture and recapture that feeling of being an almost, that arena of neutrality where it didn't hurt too much to be me, but I realized I could never be more than what I was in that moment. And Every subsequent time I drank after my first initial drink was to try and recapture that feeling of being an almost. And, and so often in life, <clears throat> we find the things that we think are helping end up harming. Anything that I'm doing outside of me that I think is making the inside of me better is eventually going to harm me. And that's just the way things are. And that's why the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, as I understand it, once again, is not designed to teach you and me how not to drink. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous is, is a program designed to teach you and me how to have a relationship with God as we understood God, that higher power, and as a result of that relationship, we will never drink or use again. And if you have a problem with that, see me after the meeting, and just like Slow Will told me, I'll sit down on the first 164 pages and I will walk you through well, that is true. If that wasn't true, then step two, step three, step four, step five, six, seven, 10, 11, and 12, we have to do away with. And then we'll just have three steps, right? Because only steps one, eight, and nine don't directly deal with God as we understood God. Everything else is about having a relationship with God. Because when I look at my life, when I come to an understanding of what I had become, I'd become a person who had no faith. You know, when you grow up the way so many of us grow up, I was, the, I was the middle child of an alcoholic father and a codependent mom, and we were poor. You know, not that that guaranteed me, because I have other brothers and sisters who did not become alcoholic, but, but it sort of sets us up as individuals who will have some type of disorder moving on. And I don't know how much of a chance I stood I know that I probably could have made a decision along the way, but I was powerless over how I felt about me, and I needed to medicate. And that's what alcohol is. It is a medication. It tells me that no matter what is going on inside of me right now, when I drink a certain amount, I'm okay, as I previously stated. But that only works for a while. You know, after a while, what we drank and in, in this essentially the definition of tolerance, what I drank yesterday to achieve that effect is not going to be enough today. And incrementally, I do more. And I was on such a destructive path that by the time I was 18 years old, January 3rd of 1972, I was a senior in high school and I was going to graduate in May. Right? Picture that. I walk into the registrar's office and I said, I'm going to drop out of school. And they said, well, you can't do that. And I said, well, I can do anything I want. I'm 18 years old. And I showed them my driver's license. 
And it was my first introduction is, um, you know, I'll show you, I'll kill me. And I did that because I was so tired. I was so weary of having others tell me what was right, no matter how right it was. And also school and other things got in my way of doing what I wanted to do. And that was drink on a regular basis. So I, I started out on this journey of trying to recapture that feeling of being an almost. And every now and then I thought I'd achieve it. But I found along the way that alcohol just wasn't enough. I couldn't drink enough to set aside that feeling of coming from nothing, being a nothing, and the notion that I was always going to be a nothing. And so I started to introduce other substances into my life sort of to enhance my mentality. And I went through relationships, I went through jobs, I went through, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what a geographic was until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, hell, I've been doing that for 15 years. You know, I never met a relationship that I couldn't move from if it wasn't giving me what I wanted when I wanted it and how I wanted it. I never met a place that I couldn't leave. I never met a family member that I couldn't disappoint or walk away from because I did not know how to be me. And so many of us, and as, as evidence of you being in the room tonight, it means that you survived your attempt at killing yourself. And it's not that we wanted to die, it's just that we didn't know how to live. And we are sick. As you've heard it before, we're not bad people trying to get better, we're sick people trying to get well. And that's what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous allows us to do. But we don't know that from the outside because we have this thing called denial. No matter who told me or how they told me or when they told me, I could not understand that alcohol was my problem. The fact that you would tell me that alcohol was my problem, that made you the problem. And I had to find a way to finesse you. I had to find a way to move you out of my life unless there was still something I needed from you. Then I kept you around because I needed to extract that. And then when I was done extracting, then I could move on. And it didn't matter to me if you were my children, if you were one of my wives, if you were my boss, if you were my mom, if you were my dad, if you were my sister, my brother, my friend. It didn't matter who you were because I had to protect the only supply I understood that kept me from blowing my brains out. And that was alcohol and the other things that I introduced into my life. And when we live that way such a long time, it sets up a degree of loneliness and I don't know if anyone understands loneliness to the degree that you and I do, because we live an isolated life while we're around other people. I remember being at a concert. Uh, I'm a big music guy. And I remember being at the uh, L.A. Coliseum and seeing Jethro Tull, Robin Trower, and Rory Gallagher. And there was about 100,000 people there. This was back in the mid-70s. And I remember just for a moment looking out at all the people and you know what thought I had? How come I feel so alone? And I remember feeling that way. I didn't do anything about it. I just got more drunk and more high, right? But I remember feeling that way. Almost 100,000 people were around me, and yet I felt alone. Do you know why? Because I was. Fortunately for me, that was in 1975. I would last another seven years until I started to come into an understanding and that was my first clinical diagnosis in Nevada at the psychiatric center. I went and saw a psychiatrist as 
as a re recommendation to my of my boss. And I went in and he, and he diagnosed me, said you have an obsessive compulsive disorder with alcoholism and the prognosis is you would never get better. And I believed that. He was a doctor. I knew what I was. I wouldn't tell you and I wouldn't even admit it to myself because once we admit something to ourselves, we then have an obligation to do something about it. And since our first obligation is to protect the supply, we deny that we have a problem. And denial kills more alcoholics than, than, a, than, a, than a, a nine millimeter ever could because we continue to drink and we continue to go down. And eventually we die from this disease or we end up in prison for the rest of our life never understanding what it could be like to be free. So this was in 1982, and I was about to marry and divorce my second wife, and pretty much in that order. Um, it was really quick. Um, and matter of fact, to this day, I don't know how long we were married. I remember my address, 1425 North Mallard in Las Vegas, but I don't know how long I was married to her. Matter of fact, when I was married to my third wife, I've almost been married 33 years now, so it does work eventually. Um, I remember getting a call when I was about married about four years to Laura. We had a couple kids by this time. And my ex-wife called me. She said, did we ever get divorced? I, I don't know. I, I was drunk, right? So, so, so as, as relationships begin to fall apart and life becomes unma more unmanageable and you go through jobs and situations, you know, we hit a series of bottoms. And, and by this time, remorse in me were mortal enemies. And, and it's one of the reasons that I became so addicted to methamphetamine, because this made perfect sense at the time. When you drink on Sunday, you wake up Monday and feel bad. And then you drink on Monday and you wake up on Tuesday and you feel bad. And you end up waking up and feeling bad every day. <laughs> I figured out that if I did enough crystal, because right, I knew guys who used to cook, if I did enough crystal, I could cut my remorse down to maybe two times a week. Because I could, I could drink on, 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 on Sunday, Amen. not pass out until Wednesday, wake up Thursday, and then not wake up until Sunday again. I mean, I had this down to a science, right? And moving to Las Vegas was really a great friend of mine. Las Vegas can do two things for you. It can accelerate your timeline to death or can accelerate your timeline to recovery. And I'm so grateful that it did the latter for me and not the former. So here I am, I lost my job, lost all my money gambling. I had already gone to Gamblers Anonymous in December of 1985. <laughs> Gamblers Anonymous didn't work, obviously. And uh, so here I was at another bottom and I wake up and I realized I had been at Davies Locker on Desert Inn, if you're familiar with Las Vegas at all, Desert Inn in Maryland Parkway, there's a place called Davies Locker, and they got free drinks, right? So that was pretty cool. It cost me $1,000, but they were free. And so, so here I am, I wake up, and this was February 9th of 1986, and I woke up in something that had never happened to me before. I looked in the mirror, and I would hear voices. Did you ever hear voices? Some are real, some are imagined. I didn't, I, to this day, I don't know which was which. But I would hear family members saying to me, Bobby, 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 what are you doing? And I can't tell you how many times I had heard them say that. 
And those were living in my head as part of my remorse. People looking at me, people who loved me, people who cared about me were so powerless to help me. They just stood by and said, we don't know what to do with you. We're so lost. We're so lost, we just have to go away and, and make you not part of our life anymore. These were the voices I was hearing. But this particular day on February 9th of 1986, as I woke up and I looked in the mirror and I was at my mom and dad's, because again, I had lost my job the previous night at the Las Vegas Hilton and I had lost all my money. And my mom and dad had already gone to work so I could get in, because otherwise they would not have let me in. And, and I looked in the mirror and there were no voices. And I realized that I was going to die. I was 32 years old and I was dead. You remember seeing yourself as dead? I think that's why you're here tonight. That's why you're involved in recovery. Because some part of you saw yourself as a person who was going to cease living as we continued our addiction. And it scared me like I'd never been scared before. It still scares me to this day to realize, as it says in the big book, how far down the scale we have gone. It scared me so much. I went over to a phone book. We had a phone book in those days, and we had a thing called the Yellow Pages. They were physical. It wasn't Google on your phone. So I started looking, and you know what I did? And I'd never done this before that day. I looked for alcoholism. I wouldn't have admitted to you on a bet that I was an alcoholic. And I wasn't sure if I was going to then, but I knew that I needed to call places that treated alcoholism. And I started calling. And most of the places, they talked to me for a minute, and then they would find out I didn't have insurance and I didn't have any money, and they'd say, well, we can't help you. And they would hang up. And about the fifth or the sixth call, I, I spoke to an intake person at Nevada Treatment Center over on Martin Luther King Boulevard in Las Vegas. And they said, well, if you can get here in an hour and bring $50 with you, we'll talk to you. I thought, okay, I can get there in an hour, but the 50 bucks, that's going to be a problem, right? Because I'd lost all my money the previous day. So I called my dad. And I said, Dad, here's the deal. Now, my dad had been sober seven years at this time. And I called my dad and said, Dad, if I can get $50 and you can come and give me a ride, because I'd, I'd sold my car at a pawn dealership for $100 like a week, oh, two weeks before that. That's how intelligent I was. Um, I had a 64 Cadillac Coupe de Ville and I had to gamble over at the California club. So I sold my car for $100. Made perfect sense at the time. And so I... I called my dad and I said, uh, yeah, restoration to sanity. We need that, right? Thank God for step two. And, and so I called my dad and said, Dad, if I can be there in an hour and if I can come with $50, they'll talk to me. And my dad was over there quicker than I'd ever seen him move my entire life. And he dropped me off at the Nevada Treatment Center. And I talked to this guy named Tom Bennett. And, uh, and I talked to Tom and he said, you know what? We, we know you're desperate enough. You know, let's, let's give this thing a try. So we're going to put you in detox in seven days, and we're going to have some meetings. Try to give me an idea of what was going on. And so that was my beginning journey into sobriety. Again, I, I played with it in December of 85 because it was, it was that foxhole religion thing. I thought if I could just get my wife off my back, everything would be okay. So I went to Gamblers Anonymous because I did have a gambling problem. And as a matter of fact, that's one of the things about 
recovery. When we come in here, even though alcohol was my primary, I'd become addicted to drugs, a compulsive overeater. I was bulimic. I was throwing up. I was compulsively overeating just so I could throw up three or five times a day because I needed that physical (coughs) sensation. of. And if you've ever thrown up, you know what I'm talking about. Um, And I was addicted to pornography. And obviously, I was a compulsive gambler. And so I had all these issues going on, and I was a wreck. I was a mess, as so many of us are when we come in here. Very rarely do you find a person, especially nowadays, who, who only has alcohol as, as a problem, usually sexual addiction and so on, go along with that. And so here I go into this program, and they start introducing me to Alcoholics Anonymous. Just in that seven-day window, I probably went to two meetings every single day, plus our group sessions. And as long as I wasn't in a bad physical condition where DTs and other types of physical ailment, they would monitor me medically, but they would allow me to begin an introduction into Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was blown away. I remember my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a club very similar to this. It's one of the reasons I really like uh, this club. Uh, You folks have something really special here in uh, South Davis. Um, I come here from West Jordan. To, to meetings just because I love the fellowship here. Uh, so I would go to these meetings and I would, I would walk into the front of the club and people were playing pool and playing pinball and hanging out playing cribbage and playing pinochle. A lot of, a lot of the sober cabbies would, would come in there. And these people were similar to people at a bar that I would meet, but everyone was sober and then they would have meetings in the back. And I thought, well, this is pretty cool. You know, I could come and fellowship and because I'm trying to figure out a way to get over, right? Another, another way to sort of half measure things. And I would go to these meetings and I would begin hearing people share. And they would begin telling me things about me, but there's no way they could know. They were telling it in their voice, in their person, in their experience. And I thought... It was unusual because no one, I'd never, I never met anyone who was that honest with me with respect to themselves. I had always had people being honest with me regarding me, but these people weren't talking about me. They were sharing their experience, strength, and hope. And as they would go around the room, I, I, I would ask questions, and Tom and Doc Erb and, and other people involved who were in recovery and, and part of the treatment center say, tell me about these people. What is this all about? And then the first time I had heard the preamble of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that we might solve our common problem and to help others to recover from alcoholism. And it goes on from there. And I thought, that's what I need. And for the first time in my life, I understood how lonely I was. You know that loneliness where you just don't want to go anywhere, even though you have to, because everything that you do takes a little bit more of who you are. And the loneliness sets in. And I thought, this is a fellowship. Matter of fact, if in the beginning, if that's the only thing I would have ever heard, that Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share, I would have stayed because you had me at fellowship. I didn't know how lonely I was because we substitute relationships with alcohol and everything that's superficial. Everything 
that was outside of me was designed to fix the inside of me. But no matter how many square pegs are trying to fit into the round hole, I still try to pound them in because I don't know that I have a God problem. I thought I had a you problem. I thought I had an alcohol problem. It was never you. It was never alcohol. It was never drugs. It was never overeating. It was never gambling. It was God. And that is why I fully believe that you solve the God problem and you solve your alcohol problem. And it's really that simple. And I've learned this along the way. And the further I go in my sobriety, the further I go down in my recovery, I realize how important my relationship with God is. I understand God is to be. And that's one of the most beautiful things that I discovered when I went into Las Vegas. Obviously, it's a very melting pot, right? And so even more so than many other areas, there was every nationality, every gender, every, every life choice, every gender choice, every relationship choice, every age. It, it just, just everyone from all walks of life were there. And yet, there was an agreement And that agreement was that if we're painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we're halfway through. For the first time in my life, I came in touch with a group of people who agreed on something. And they were all going in the same direction. And I was amazed by that. And I wanted to know. And then I started reading the big book. And I read in the forward to the first edition that we are are 100, right? It says that we have, we, we have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And to show you how we have recovered is precisely why we wrote this book. And I thought, you know, I want to know precisely because I knew what my alternative was. But here was my problem. Honesty. I couldn't be honest with you. Because as much as I needed your fellowship, I was so afraid that if you found out who I was, You wouldn't like me. If you found out what an adulterer I was, if you found out that I walked out on my children, if you found out that I destroyed everything that was good about everything in my life, you wouldn't like me. And and I saw you liking others, but I was so afraid that you wouldn't like me. And if I got turned away from one more place, I didn't think I could take it. And so I tried to do this program, Half Measures. It says Half Measures have built us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his care and protection with complete abandon. And so I treated the steps. It says here are the steps that we took, which are suggested as a program on recovery. So I treated those steps like a buffet, right? Go to Sizzlers, and you you look at the food, and you think, I want some of that. I want some of that. (laughs) Don't want any of that, but I'll take a little bit of that, right? And that's how I treated this program. Well, obviously... My life is unmanageable, but how powerless am I really, right? Because lack of power, that was my dilemma. And so I could admit things, but not to my innermost self, not fully admit. And I knew I did some crazy things, but did I really need a restoration of sanity, right? And turning my will in my life over to the care of God as we understood God, I tried turning my will in my life over to women before and other relationships, and that didn't turn out really good. So this intangible God thing, it looks good on paper. So I learned AAEs. You know what AAEs is? It's like Christianese. It's like learning the lingo, right? But never really quite doing what the lingo says to do. And I want you to know, surprisingly enough, that worked. Right up until I got drunk. 
and 71 days. That's all I could last on my laurels, on my, on my self-will. And I went out and I tried to recapture that feeling of almost. And I'm grateful to AA for a lot of things, but I'm really grateful that AA screwed up my drinking because you showed me that I didn't have to live that way anymore, that I didn't have to live a hopeless, despairing life that only knew one path and that was to die. So after five days of trying to recapture that, I was in the Rhett Butler Motel on 15th and Fremont in, in Las Vegas, catty corner from the Sundowner Motel, and that wasn't by coincidence. And I remember going into that bar the previous night, and I'd ordered a shot of whiskey from a sober bartender that I knew at my meetings, so that was a little embarrassing. I almost spilled my drink. And, and he looked at me, and I was almost apologizing, said, don't worry about it, man. He says, if you're lucky, there will be a tomorrow. And he walked away, end of shift, and I drank my drink, and I went back to my hotel room, and I tried to drink and drink and drink, and I just, there was nothing there, and I knew that you were there. So the very next day, on April 25th of 1986, I walked back into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and by God's providence, my sponsor, Max B., just happened to be in the room, they had a late lunch bunch meeting, went from 12.30 to 2 p.m. He happened to be there about 3.15. Why he was, again, it was a God thing. And I walked in thinking I could just sort of sneak back in, right? Because that's what, that's what I did. And, and I walked back in and there was Max waiting for me. And he didn't ask me where I was. He didn't ask anything. He just looked at me and said, are you ready? I said, Max, I, re I, really, I really need this thing. That's not what I asked you. And he helped me understand the difference between need and want. And I wanted to be sober. I didn't want to be that person who didn't know how to live because you showed me that there was a way of living and that's what I wanted. So that began my journey on April 25th of 1986. And it's been an amazing journey. And I'm still on that journey today. I believe in the 12 steps of recovery. I believe if you're not sober, if you're not happy, if you're not joyous, if you're not free, it's because you're not working the program. It's pretty simple for me. If you have a problem with that, I'm perfectly fine with that. Because rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. And if you don't believe that, you're probably in the wrong program. And I'll tell you that too. I, I would rather have you be offended and live than me to co-sign your BS and die. Because that's a choice. Now, as we were talking earlier, love and tolerance is our code, so I need to sort of bathe my perspective in kindness. But if you were drowning off the coast of California and I threw you a life preserver, would you really care how nice I was when I threw it? Or would you just be happy that I threw it? That I had one, that I was willing to throw. So now when I came back into the program, I was ready because I knew that the only life out there for me was to drink and to die. But I more powerfully knew that there was another way of living that you were going to offer, providing I was to follow a few simple rules. Because that's what it says in the doctor's opinion. If I'm willing to follow a few simple rules, then the very same person who, who could not live says now finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted the desire to be gone. So I went to my sponsor, Max, and I said, Max, what are these simple rules? He said, they're simple. 
clean house, trust God, and work with others. If you can do that, those are the rules. Now, let me show you how these rules play out. And so I began to take a look at the steps, and I began to incorporate them, and I admitted I was powerless over alcohol and how unmanageable life became. That became very evident once I became honest. And then obviously no person does the things that we do and still consider drinking as an option doesn't need to be restored to sanity. Only insane people think that maybe I can have one more drink in spite of the evidence that we find in step one. That's a definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. One thing I found out, conversely, the definition of sanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting the same result. And that's what I do today. So then when I got to that standpoint and I realized that I really do need to turn my will and my life over to the care of something, and you told me it can be anything I want it to be, providing it makes sense. So stay away from doorknobs. Because they don't make any sense. They don't do anything for you. Stay away from a chair because other than holding you up, it can't minister to you. But people can. Groups can. The sunrise can. A sunrise sunset always does. You know, the tide goes in, the tide goes out, and we don't get drunk in between. That's a higher power, right? So we become willing to turn our will and our life over to the care of that God. And then that prepares me to take a personal inventory, right? A moral inventory. It wasn't immoral that I drank, but it was immoral the things that I did. And I needed to get to the bottom of that. Because I need to, as Eminem would say, clean out that closet, right? So so then, once I do that, I know that I need to admit that. Because I can't keep that inside of me. They told me, you're only as sick as your secrets. God already knew everything anyway, so all I needed to do was find another person I trusted. By this time, Jack Fisher was my sponsor, and share those things with him. And I was so eager at this point just to get that thing out of me. And then, obviously, I knew I had defects of character. That was pretty obvious. I discovered a lot of those in step five and my shortcomings in step six. And so steps four, steps five, step six, and step seven. And then it became amends. And by this time, I was ready to tell you I'm sorry because you know what? I really was. For the first time in my life, not only did I feel bad, but I was willing to go and tell you because I knew that to tell you was part of my level of honesty. And I knew where dishonesty got me. So steps eight and nine became easier with the help and the guidance of my sponsor and others people around me. And you know, as I, as I was talking earlier with someone, step 10, I just do inventory on another level. Because it says, if you notice it says continue to take personal inventory. So why are they saying continue? Because they're assuming I have been taking inventory. Steps one through nine are inventory steps, by the way. Taking inventory everywhere through. And again, if you want me to lay that down for you, I will at another time. So I continue to take a personal inventory. And when I'm wrong, promptly admit it. By the way, at almost 36 years sober, I still do that step every day. Matter of fact, sometimes three or four times during the day. Because I can do a spot check, I can do a daily, I can do an annual and a, sem a semi-annual and an annual house cleaning. And boy, when you live the way I live with my ego and, and my idea that I'm always right in spite of evidence, you know, I do need some house cleaning. And it's because I do that house cleaning that I know I'm fallible. I know I make mistakes. I know I need to rely on a power greater than myself. So that makes a transition into step 11 so natural for me. So I'll do prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood God praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Lack of power, that was my dilemma. I go to step 11 and I find power. 
Don't you like a little power? I love power. But it's not power for me, it's power for others. And as a result of sharing with others. So now I, I transition into step 12. The assumption is having had a spiritual awakening. So it's assuming that I've had a spiritual awakening, that I'm now in the spiritual realm. And if you're not, we need to go back and do the steps again because it's telling me I should be there. And if I'm not where the step tells me I need to be, I need to go to the previous step and find out why. So having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics. And then what? It's not enough that I carry the message to you. I have to practice these principles in all my affairs. What are the principles? Clean house, trust God, and work with others. Let me make the steps real easy for you. I learned this along the way. There are three aspects of my recovery, of my being well. And by the way, I am not only recovered, I am well. It says, burn it into the consciousness of every man that you can get well. That's on page 98 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So don't bother looking. Go check it out later. Because again, if your argument is with anyone, it's not with me. Your, pro your argument is with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so steps, if we solve me, God, and others, we recover. That's what the steps are. And steps for me are broken down in steps 1 through 9 and 10, 11, and 12. Steps 1 through 3 deal with me and my needs. Steps 4 through 7 are about God. Steps 8 and 9 is about others. I come to an understanding of my depravity and my addiction. I turn to God. I get that cleansed, shortcomings, defects of character, admitting moral, moral uh, inventory. That's a God thing. Right? And then eight and nine, I go and tell, I write it down that I've harmed you, and then I go make amends to you wherever possible, except when to do so would injure you or even me. Right? Because if I'm not you, I'm another. That's very important to understand. So I, I grow through those steps, steps one through nine, and guess what? This, the maintenance steps 10, 11, and 12. 10 is about me, step 11 is about God, and step 12 is about other. So you, if we solve me, God, and others, what else is there? And that's the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what gives us our freedom. That's what gives me my, my release from bondage of self. Because it's no longer about me. It's about we. It's about our. And did you know that the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is some of the only therapy known to man that deals in the past tense. Read the steps. Every step assumes that you've done it. It's not, we need to go do this, we need to go do that. We admitted, came to believe, became willing, made a fearless, admitted, Pence, we've already done it. Humbly asked him to move our shortcomings. You know, and, and God in, in step six, removing our defects of character. We made a list of all persons we had harmed became willing to make amends to such people, continued, right? Sought, it's past tense, we've already done it, having had a spiritual awakening. So it's assuming, when I, when I read those steps, it's assuming I've taken them. Why not take them? Because what's the alternative? If God wants me to be happy, joyous, and free, if newcomers could see no joy in my existence, they wouldn't want it. And if I'm not those things, it's, you know, we're not a glum lot, right? That's what it says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my obligation is to the newcomer. But the only way I can minister to the newcomer 
is to the, do the best I can for me. You've heard it before, maybe you've said it before, the newcomer is the most important person in the room. Do you ever hear that? That's wrong. Let me tell you why it's wrong in my understanding. If the newcomer is the most important person in the room, then we view AA as a giant furnace that needs new coals to keep it going. The fact is, we who are already here, if we don't do the best we can for ourselves, there's not going to be anyone here when the newcomer arrives. So every day, I do the best I can to become a better version of me, in spite of me. Because my ego says I'm okay, but I'm not. Because I'm just a guy who takes his own inventory, and I hope you do as well. And by the way, you better take my inventory. Don't use it against me, right? But that's another thing. If I tell you to stick with the winners, but then I tell you don't take my inventory, how the heck are you going to know I'm a winner? It's not possible. So we take everyone's inventory. And that's not taking someone's inventory is not in the first 164 pages. That's just somebody's opinion who doesn't want their inventory taken. But I want you to take mine. And I want you to come to me and say, Robert, I see, don't use it against me. Come up to me and say, Robert, I see this in your life. I hear you say that, but I see you living that way. Can you help me understand why you can say this and be that? And that's how we grow. That's how we help each other. It's, the Bible says that iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. So I'm very good friends with Chaz. I'm very good friends with Tess. I'm very good friends with Brandon. I know Danny. I know Mike. I know some of the other people who would come into this room. They see me. They hear me. I would want them to come to me. Wouldn't you want them to come to you? If it, if it helps us become a better version of who we are, and it's in love and in caring, and, and again, love and tolerance is our code. And here is the similarity. You know, I close with this every time I speak because it's my favorite page of the big book. Because we were alone and now we're not. We were in despair and now we have hope. We were on our way to dying and now we have recovery. And it's not by accident that these things occurred. And let me share this with you as I get ready to close. This is from page 17 of the big book. There is a solution. We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as helpless as Bill nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. We are average Americans. All sections of this country and many of its occupations are represented, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are people who normally would not mix, but there exists amongst us a, a friendliness a fellowship and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Unlike the feeling of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our own individual ways. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which now binds us. But that in itself would have not held us together as we are now joined. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out in which we can agree and join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. My name is Robert. I'm alcoholic.